You are listening to a message by Travis Scott from our gatherings at Shorebreak. Visit shorebreakchurch.com to get connected with more content. And if you would like to support the gospel being preached in Kona and to thousands online, your tax-deductible donation enables us to further Jesus' mission. Partner with us by giving at shorebreakchurch.com backslash give. Mahalo. Hey, you can be seated and turn in your Bibles, church, to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4 is where we uh, have been for the last couple weeks, and it's where we're going to soon end our study through this book. But hey, my name's Travis, and I'm one of the pastors here at the church. We're glad that you are joining with us. And so uh, we, this is what we do. If, you're, if you are new, if you haven't been here before, we just kind of make our way through books of the Bible. And today is really no different. We're just making our way through another book of the Bible. And so Philippians is that book. And from the songs we sing to the conversations that we have, from the messages that we share and hear, all are in nature vertical. By their nature, they are meant to point our eyes towards Jesus, for us to fix our eyes upon him, and for us and our minds to set our minds on things that are above. And so oftentimes, like uh, more often than not, when, when we uh, lift and amplify and make much of Jesus, what that means is our, our, our hearts are filled with joy. We are living for his pleasure. We, uh, it's a great experience to be had. And likewise, when we aren't living, when we are living for him, there is often much like the the surgeon with the scalpel will go in and etch all that is in our hearts away, so that we would simply worship and make much of him. And so, wherever you're at, maybe you experience both and on a Sunday morning. And so that's really what happens: is it's coming to know him and growing him and fixing our eyes upon him. And so. Uh, we're glad to have you joining us today, and, and big mahalos to those of you who filled out the questionnaire for the new service times. As we have described before, um, we have had really a uh, an interesting thing happen where the 9 a.m. service is really beginning to thrive and to grow. The 11 a.m. is somewhat lacking a little bit, and so because of that, uh, last week, if you weren't here last week, we which is why you should be at church every week, cough, cough. But um, last week we had a questionnaire that we did uh, in front of, uh, that, we, that we did, that we put up on our website, asking you guys what you thought would be most effective in reaching our island for better service times. And so for those service times, you guys, an overwhelming majority decided that, 10, uh, that 8 a.m., and 10 a.m. were by far going to be the best times. So beginning June uh, 7th, tentatively, we're going to be moving towards having our worship gatherings now at 8 a.m. and at 10 a.m. Uh, that might mean some changes for you. But, but the, here, before we talk about uh, how our hearts should be in response to this, um, one of the reasons why we're doing this is primarily is to be most effective in reaching our community, right? Like Kona by nature is early to bed and early to rise. That's probably why, uh, you know, we do see the more heavier attendance at, at nine than we do at the 11. So Kona is early to bed, early to rise. And not only that, much like when you go surfing, you want to go out when the winds are hopefully offshore or glassy, Probably in the morning is going to be the best time to go. Or just like if you're a fisherman, you know that the fish will bite at a certain time of the day. You want to be most effective in striking while they are in hot. And we really feel like our, our 11 a.m. is missing. Now, we're glad that you're here 11 a.m. We're thankful for you. Uh, so that means change, though, coming. And so um, second, second reason is not only is it more effective in reaching our island, but it's positioned better for growth. This time of year is when we typically see uh, a, 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 a plateau or even a little decline in our attendance because of the nature of summer uh, coming upon us. And so, um, but come fall, the 9 a.m. service, right, as of right now, the way it is right now, will be full. And the 11 a.m. is a little bit later in the day. And so for sustainable growth, 8 and 10 is there for the long haul. And there's no way if we were to stay at 9, 11, we would add a third. Not going to happen, especially. So uh, that's kind of where we're at. And so just wanted to update you guys with those things. 
Um, so be praying for that. Your, our heart's position now, maybe uh, you, that might kind of affect your schedule a little bit. And, and we're sorry about that. We, we we're not trying. But at the end of the day, we're laying our preferences down for the sake of having more effective service worship times for people to come to know Jesus at the end of the day. And so I'm not a huge fan of it. I'm not a huge fan of the eight, rather. Let me just say. <laughs> There's a, you're here at the 11 for the same reason I'm here at the 11. Um, uh, 9 a.m. is too early for me, okay? I'm just going to say 9 a.m., you guys, is too early for me. Uh, my creative juices get flowing right around 11 p.m. So <laughs> it's just the way God created me. So, um, But just so you guys know, we're, we're in this together. Thank you for your feedback, and we're laying down our preferences for the sake of others, me included, and we've already heard of a couple of people who are going to be coming to the 8 a.m. who haven't been able to come to church at 9 or 11 because of their work schedule. So um, we're going to probably see a whole new group of people, and really the, the services will feel different. So mark that on your calendars, June 7th, tentatively, we will be going to that. Well, as you know, we have been in Philippians we have been nearing the end of our study in the book of Philippians. And what chapter 4, is, which is where we're at, we've are, we're a few messages in chapter 4, is Paul is trying to reveal and show you and me, hey Christian, you want to live a stable life, this is what it looks like. Now, how many of us would love stability in our walks with God? How many of us would love to be resolute strong on conviction, passionate, not wavering to and fro, but building our life upon Jesus who is our solid rock. How many Christians do we know, let alone ourselves, who, who live following their emotions, who, who live not stable lives, but their lives, they're, 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 they're doing really well and they're doing horrible and then they're passionate about Jesus. And then I have a friend who calls me when he's in desperation and wants to be spiritual, and then the moment things seem to be going well in life, he doesn't need God, and he doesn't call me at all. How many of us desire, not just for ourselves, but even for our church as a community, for us to be a strong, solid, resolute people building our lives upon Christ? Chapter 4 is all about that. Standing firm. And to stand firm, we know from the beginning of chapter 4, is to, to agree in the Lord. That as a community, despite our disagreements, despite our different views, as a community, we can collectively gather together agreeing in the Lord. That by far what we agree upon outweighs any secondary disagreements we would have. And so that's what we're doing. That's what we're here for is to say we're going to agree in the Lord despite our disagreements. And that will, for one, make us firm because we are stronger together than we, we would ever be alone. We agree in the Lord. Another way to, to be standing firm is to rejoice in the Lord. That no matter what circumstances, we always are rejoicing. We're always making much of him. We're always finding ourselves to be glad in him. So we, uh, we agree in the Lord. We rejoice in the Lord. The way we rejoice in the Lord is also through prayer in the Lord. Knowing that the Lord is at hand and knowing that God is sovereign, we go to him in prayer. Because we're not asking God to do anything he's unable to do or he feels like doing, but we're asking him to do what we believe he, in his power, is fully able to accomplish. And so we agree, rejoice, pray, and have the mind of Christ. We have the mind of the Lord. In fact, we talked about that we are to be thinking about whatever is true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable. If there is anything worthy of praise, in other words, Paul's like, if I miss something in there, if it's worthy of praise, then you should be thinking about these things. And so do you see, Christian, the call, the command from scriptures that yes, God has given you emotion and a heart and passion of which we should follow and worship the Lord and let those things stir our affections for Jesus. But all of those things must be guided by our mind. That we are to be thinking that Christianity is very much a heart thing, but just as much as Christianity is a heart thing, it is a mind thing. That's why Jesus said, in summing up the law, 
He said, of the greatest of all these laws, we are to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, mind and strength. So we're to be thinking about all these things, to have the mind of Christ. Setting our minds on things that are godly, godly, because here's the thing. If we are to set our minds and not be resolute in what we believe, an unstable mind will stumble and fall in sin. And so listen, before the day of trouble comes, Paul doesn't say you should be thinking about those things, these godly things sometime in the future. In some unforeseeable time in the future, you might want to begin thinking about these praiseworthy things. He says, now, present tense, be actively thinking about these things now because a stable mind with a helmet of salvation will be immovable and unshakable and stand firm even when our passions and our hearts misguide us because our minds are engaged, renewed by the word of God. So what we have learned, what we have heard, and what we have seen, Paul says, practice these things. Practice them. Do them. Live them. In other words, don't just like the word of God. Live the word of God. Don't just believe these things to be true, but because you believe these things to be true, we live these truths out within our lives. To practice them is to embrace God's word and in faith act upon what God has said. God would have nothing less for us than to hear his word and to do the word. And the scriptures acknowledge this, that we would be glad to sit in, in our seats and be in community groups and, and be with other Christians talking about and hearing the word of God, but not doing anything with it. That assumption is in Philippians. That assumption is in James 1, 1, 1 where, where James says, uh, do not be, be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving yourselves. That is to say that there is a way, isn't that crazy? There's a way you and me can we can deceive ourselves by hearing the word and not doing the word. And we often think, no, 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 you don't understand though. When I hear the word, I'm not going to be deceived. You will be deceived when you hear the word and not do the word. Is that not sobering, right? <laughs> oh man, that I could be in church hearing truth about God and not doing this truth about God and that is when I am deceived. Now, there are of course other ways to be deceived. So we're to practice these things because they don't happen naturally, amen? Like they do not happen on accident. We don't on accident begin to think about godly things. We don't set our minds on things that are true, honor, I mean, but pure. They have to be intentional, to be thought out, informed by scripture. And as we grow in obedience, we are promised the peace of God will be with us. In other words, as a Christian, guys, whenever God commands you to do something, whenever God commands me to do something, it is not without his provision. It is not without him making a way for you and for me to be able to accomplish what he is commanding. The God of peace will be with you. He will hold your hand. He will guide you. Every step you take, he is preordained, being sovereign, that you would walk in the good works he has set before you. And this is never more true for our verses this morning in Philippians. Let's all stand for the reading of God's word. Philippians chapter four, verse 10. I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have received your concern for me and you were indeed concerned for me. But you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking out of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation, I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Jesus, thank you for your word. God, thank you for every person that is in here this morning. Apart from you, God, we are empty, 
hopeless, depraved. But in you, we can do far more than we could ever imagine. In you, there is grace to be enjoyed that exceeds our expectation. And so God, in this moment, as we study your word, be our teacher, God. Reveal these things to be true to us. Stir our affections and engage our minds that we might be sharper than we were before we came in here, that we might love you more than we do presently. The fact that Paul says practice these things, God, is an acknowledgement that we are not perfect. So we admit we are not perfect. God, we admit this morning that all of us, we do not have our lives all together as we should. But by your grace, we can grow closer and closer to you. We can begin to show the image of Jesus in our lives. And so, Lord, we just pray that we would decrease and that you would increase in this time of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. Paul is just a rejoicer, is he not? And he starts off again as if, I rejoice the Lord always, again I say rejoice, as if he hasn't said that enough. He again says, I rejoice. Right off the bat, we immediately see the Apostle Paul looking for a reason to praise God. Listen, no matter what circumstance you're in, no matter where you are at, there is always a reason to be praising God. Rejoice always. That word is to rejoice, is to make much of, to enjoy, to thrive within. And here is the Apostle Paul before he goes on to say some pretty well-known verses within Christianity that have maybe helped us and been a great comfort to us. Rejoice in the Lord. You make much of him. Rejoice in the Lord, he says. Greatly for what? Now, at length, you have received your concern for, for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Paul has learned from this man of Epaphroditus that the Philippian church is concerned for him. Epaphroditus is really the main pastor there in Philippi. And the Philippian church, out of concern for Paul's well-being in a Roman prison, which, of course, in prison, they're not like prisons today, where you get to watch TV, play card games, and do whatever else you do in prison, uh, get three meals a day, and get a chance to work out. That is not like prison then. Paul was blessed if he got a meal for the day and they didn't forget about him in that cold cellar and the deep a part of the prison there in Rome. So out of their compassion, Paul learns from Epaphroditus, which was sent by the Philippian church. They've been trying to send support from the Philippian church to Paul for a while. They've been trying to show how they love him. They wanted to do it, but they just couldn't get help to him. In other words, as Paul has just come off of saying, practice these things, they've been practicing them. That the gospel has taken such a reality in their life that they have been living out what they believe about the gospel. They have been growing in gospel maturity. And because of the gospel, their compassion towards Paul is evident. And them trying to send gifts to Paul. And think about that for a moment. There is not a more mature church. I mean, just think about some of the churches that Paul has written letters to. Not exactly. Corinth. They got some issues in that church, amen? Like, you read some of the stuff, you're like, you're a Christian, and, and you're like, are you, sh-? like, wow, Corinthians, they are a church gone wreck. They are a mess of a church. And, but, but here is Paul saying, um, I'm rejoicing in you. I'm rejoicing in the Lord because of you, because they sent this gifts. And, and Paul has learned from Epaphroditus he would have showed up. He couldn't give him it, you know, a message in advance. He would have just showed up. Paul would have been overjoyed. 
And you see, the postal service today is nothing like the postal service was then. They probably tried to send a love offering. They probably tried to send some money and, and, and some letters to Paul. But they had yet to get them to them. And there was reasons for that. There could have been a war. Imagine you're trying to deliver a letter, just a letter, and you get caught up in the middle of a war. You get sick. Or you're on a ship, and the ship sinks. It was very difficult to have things delivered. Again, not like today, even though a couple days ago, I'm not even kidding you, uh, our street was full of cars. There must have been like some sort of a game happening and, and uh, or a party. Like the street was packed with cars. And so uh, the mailman was driving by, and I, I kid you not, like is going like stopping by, and then he sees all these cars like in front of our mailbox, and he like slows down, looks at it, and then turns and speeds away and like doesn't even drop off the mail. I'm like, are you kidding me? Like, and so I, I witnessed my neighbor saw it too. And he comes out. He's like, did you just see that? I was like, yeah, did you just see that? Now, maybe we didn't get mail. Who really knows? But, but for the most part, our mail today is far more reliable than mail was then. But Paul has learned from Epaphroditus. Isn't that crazy? The church sends their best sent their best, their man, Paphroditus, go, sends their best to meet with him. He learns from them that the, that the Philippians still have deep care for them, that they still have compassion towards Paul. And he rejoices in the Lord greatly because the gospel has caused them to be compassionate. The gospel causes us to be a compassionate people, to no longer be consumed within ourselves, to be self-focused, but the gospel causes us to be others-focused, looking out to meet the needs to serve others. Now, we're going to talk about this more, actually, next week. However, they are consumed with, they're not consumed with themselves. They're consumed with thinking about other people. And so, he is rejoicing in them, that they, in the Lord, that they have blessed him. Now, that's just, not just ethereal. Maybe Lydia wrote a letter to him. Remember Lydia, the first person to be saved by Paul? First salvation that came to the church in Philippi? Maybe that, that, that burly Roman soldier brother. Remember him? Maybe he wrote a Hallmark card to Paul. Maybe the gospel has so wrecked his soul. Not like he's a softie anymore, but, but he, the, the hard edges of what he once was have been rounded a bit. And he has compassion towards Paul. Maybe, maybe the Greek slave girl. She doesn't have much money. Give some money to help support the gospel. They're not consumed with themselves. They've been so transformed by the gospel that they love Jesus and they care for Paul. And a gospel-focused, maturing church is that. A church that stands together in the gospel we be, will be a church that is heard about and a force to be reckoned with, just as a side note. That is my prayer for our church. That we would be a church that is heard about beyond even just Kona and this island. That because of our compassion, not just for each other, but for our island and our love for the people here, that they would come to know the gospel, that we would be a force to be reckoned with. That was a church in Philippi. A people who Paul rejoiced in because of their maturity, because they were doing the word, and it was evident in the way they gave to him. Then we read in verse 11. Paul says this interesting thing. It's so strange what he says. Not that I am speaking of being in need. In other words, I'm rejoicing in the Lord because of the gifts you gave me, but I didn't need them. You ever give like, you know, when you give clothes to a kid on Christmas or his birthday? It's like, thanks, but no thanks, right? That's what's happening almost here. It's almost like as though Paul says, I'm rejoicing in the Lord greatly because you've had compassion towards me. Thank you for your gifts, but no thank you. I, I, not that I am in speaking out of need. Paul is making it clear here. He doesn't have a need for what they gave him. Now, that's, that's kind of interesting. Because it's not like, I mean, how do we make sense of this? Well, 
Is Paul in need? Yes. <laughs> Paul is in need, like he's in prison. Who knows how thin he is at this point from the rations of food he would be getting, the physical state he would be in. He, the guy's in need. And the guy, so, so then why would he say, thank you for your gifts, but I, I'm, I'm not speaking out of need here. See, it's not that he is looking for them to somehow bring life to his weary bones. Paul is not relying and resting in the fact that if he does not get a gift from them, then he does not know how he's going to continue on and, and live. Paul loves them, and don't get me wrong, Paul is blessed by them, but Paul does not focus on them. Paul focuses on God. And we can learn something from Paul here. Because so often, in times of temptation, especially in moments of need, we can look for others to fulfill only what God can fulfill. I'm going to say that again. So often, especially in times of need, we can look to others to fulfill what only God can fulfill. And that was not Paul here. Paul was in no way looking for the Philippians to bring a purpose and a meaning to his life because he did not look to them for purpose and meaning for his life. And the needs of our life, we can all admit, maybe you do have some legitimate needs this morning, but they are probably not at the level of Paul. Maybe we'll never be at the level of Paul's needs. However, we can learn from Paul that yes, we can enjoy the blessings of others, but we do not live for the blessings of others. Paul enjoyed the blessing of the Philippians. You can see that here. That's why he's rejoicing in the Lord. But he did not need the blessings to fulfill him. So in other words, to, to, to make this personal, I love my wife. She's a wonderful person, I enjoy dating her. I enjoy talking with her. I, I can't believe that she puts up with me still. I'm just so thankful for her. However, I don't need her. Now, you might be saying, that, that's kind of rude. Don't need your wife? I enjoy her. And I rejoice in the Lord because of her. But I don't live to receive blessings from her. The same way I don't live to receive the blessings from my children. I love my kids, but I don't need my kids. Now, yes, my wife, like my children, are a blessing from the Lord. However, I don't need to have them bless me in such a way that I will be fulfilled. So, is that true for you? It, um, for your work, for your relationships, for wherever you are at. See, we don't need anything or anyone to be our functional God in the midst of need because we have God who satisfies all our needs. This is where the Apostle Paul is, is taking us. He says, not that I am speaking out of need. Now, do you hear his heart in that? I'm in need, but it's not that I am speaking out of a need. I'm not out of desperation because I have God. I don't have to, Paul doesn't have to look to any of these other small gods, little g, because he is the one and true God who will satisfy and meet all of his needs. And so he says, I have learned, the second half of verse 11, that in whatever situation, I am to be content. So here is Paul now, dropping this C word, the content word, the word that we are familiar with, but we're not familiar with. If you were honest with yourself, could you say that your life is marked by contentment? See, contentment is rare. Contentment is uncommon. Contentment does not come easily. Because all of us in here this morning have at some point in our life been discontent with our contentment, which in fact makes us discontent. You're like, what? Yeah, I know. In other words, we're just a discontent people. And even if we have a little bit of discontentment in our contentment, we are still discontent. And we should be encouraged by this. 
we should be encouraged by how Paul begins talking about this thing of contentment. Look what he says in verse 11 again. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned. Underline that, circle that, you memorize this about contentment. No, it does not come easy. No, it is, it, it is it, yes, it is a rare thing. Absolutely, it is extremely uncommon. But contentment is learned. In fact, he says it later in verse 12. Again, to make sure we learned that contentment is something to be learned. Something we grow in. It's something we begin to understand Paul has learned that Jesus is enough with a lot of things and a full stomach. And Paul has learned over the process of times that when he does not have a lot of things and when Paul is in need, he can be content. We learn this. And if anyone is going to make such a bold statement, I want to know who this is, right? I, I, I don't know if you're like me. I'm a little bit cynical at times. And, and I will much more, I mean, in being in ministry, I receive critiques. I've been in ministry long enough. I've heard the critiques from, I've heard the most strangest things ever said. And, and some of them are good, and I do, I do hear all of them. But I'll tell you right now, I'm much more likely to receive a critique from someone I know and someone I love than, than a random person who, who just comes in here and, and says some few things, right? I mean, just being, you, you do too. You do too, whether it comes to family or friends or even in your workplace. I mean, if a new guy comes in and starts throwing you under the bus, it's not going to fly. His critiques don't mean as much as your boss's or someone else's. So I want to know who's demanding such a thing for my life that if I'm to be content, like this man, like Paul, I want to I know a story. I want to I sit down and, 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 and learn about who he is. And so before Paul is Paul, we know he is Saul. Saul was a huge success. We oftentimes view Saul's pre-conversion life as something that was kind of, it was all right. He was circumcised on the eighth day, a Jew of Jews, a Hebrew of Hebrews, a Pharisee. We learn that all just from his own testimony here in Philippians. In other words, in the realm of being a Jew, he was the man. This guy was the dude's dude. You cannot find a better man walking around for the, for the Jewish faith than a man like Paul. In other words, he was doing extremely well. Guys, he was loved by the Jews. This man was zealous for the law. There's no doubt he stayed up late with his buddies talking about the law. Like he loved theology. He loved truth. He uh, was not worried about if he was going to pay his bills. Being a Pharisee and doing what he was doing and the way the whole system worked then about how they were really extorting people for more money, he was doing really well financially. He probably didn't even have to balance his checkbook. Uh, uh, an expense came up, no big deal. He just figured it out. He made it work. And Saul, I would say, is probably on his way to be the best well-known celebrity Pharisee they would ever see. Serious. He had many great friends, probably some in high places, but on his way to persecute the church more. That's how zealous this guy was. So passionate about the Jewish faith, imprisoning and persecuting the church. In fact, the per first person, I believe, was persecuted, Stephen, was done under the authority of Paul, which we know in scriptures. I, I personally believe that Paul was probably there, or Saul, holding the coats of those who took off their coats to pick up the stones to throw at him, at Stephen, which would be the first martyred Christian. That's how hardcore this guy was. It's hardcore. And the Jews loved him. In fact, he had just gotten approval from headquarters that he can go to, to persecute more in the church. And so on his road, on the way, on the road to Damascus, literally on his high horse, gets knocked off by the glory of God. 
and is at this extremely low point in his life, fearing for his life. I love what he says. Lord, who are you? And Jesus saves him on the spot. Believes in him. So now this man gets a new heart, a changed life, and a new name. Saul becomes Paul. Really high, pretty low, and then pretty high again in life because he gets saved. Pharisee, knocked off his horse by the God of the universe, and then gets saved by the God of the universe. That's a pretty, ro- pretty good roller coaster happening there, right? All of his friends that he used to stay up with late at night, talking about the law, fellow students, and families, no doubt, that he would have gone to synagogue with. We learn all these people. You know those friends that you know, that they know you so well, they just can never take you seriously? Even if it's serious, they're like, yeah, shut up. You're just, whatever. You know what I mean? Those type of people. Paul had very close people who he knew and he loved in his life. And the moment he gets saved, he begins to preach the gospel in Acts chapter 9. All these people whom he loved, you know what they want to do to him? murder him. Like, imagine that. These people you've, you've stayed up late with, you've hung out with, you've done life with, they love you, you love them, you know more than you could ever know about each other, now they want you dead. But he begins to preach the gospel. It's a pretty low point in life. But then as he preaches the gospel, people begin to get saved, and the church is growing. Things be, seem to be getting better. But then many in the church... We're like, wait, you want, Paul wants to come and preach here? Like, I know what he did to all those other Christians. Are you we sure we want this guy to come into our church? Uh, no, thank you. And so, no joke, while his friends wanted him dead, the Christian brothers were afraid of him. And how lonely is this man? Brothers wouldn't accept him. Friends want him dead. Paul is living in this place. He's at another low point in his life. Old friends become enemies. So as a Christian, is Paul living his best life now? Is, is he healthier? Is, is he safer? Is he never going to go through a hard time again because now he believes in Jesus? You can turn there if you like or go there on your app. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Paul is, gives, we've read this as a church before, but I want to read this in light of where we're at in our, in our verses today. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, beginning in verse 21. We're going to go all the way to verse 28. Paul says this. Whatever anyone else dares to boast of, I am speaking as a fool. I also dare to boast of that. Are they Hebrew? So am I. Are they an Israelite? So am I. Are they offspring of Abraham? Well, so am I. Are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. It's true. It's not lying. If it would be a lie, then he would be sinning, but he's true. I am talking like a madman, which far greater labors, far more imprisonments, Paul says, with countless beatings. Pause. How many times have you beaten up on your life? Been beaten up on. You can probably count them on your hand, right? You know the number. I've been beaten up twice, once by my sister, not even kidding. She grabbed the porcelain plates in the kitchen and just starts like throwing it. I'm like ducking for my life. I'm not even gonna tell you what I did to deserve that. However, I've been in two fights in my life. You probably can know how many fights you've been in, whether you lost or whether you won. Paul is like, yeah, let me see, one, two, uh, countless. Countless beatings. Can't even remember how many beatings he's taken. Of these beatings, often near death. Verse 24. Five times received at at the hands of the Jews. Forty lashes, less than one, near death. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. At night... In a day, I was adrift at the sea. If the plane goes down the first time, okay, whatever, you'll go on a plane again if you survived. The second time, if the plane goes down and you survived, you're probably not getting on an airplane anymore, right? 
Paul gets on his ship for the third time. Ship goes down, gets stranded on an island, gets bit by a snake. At what point are you like, come on, God, really? Can you just like... <laughs> Dangers from robbers. Dangers from my own people. We just talked about that. Dangers from the Gentiles. Danger in the city. Oh, what about the country? Danger in the wilderness. Danger at sea, danger from false brothers, and in toil and in hardship through many sleepless nights, and hunger and in thirst, often without food and cold, and exposure, and apart from other things, there is the daily pressure of me, of my anxiety for all the churches. So on top of all that, on top of all those things that are happening, it's like, and I worry about the church. When we, like Paul, Learn that Jesus is enough when things are going well. And when that Jesus is enough when things are not going well, then we can be content. I can take this from a man like him. We've said it before and at, at this church. It's kind of something that we just say often, but it, we, if, if all you get in life is Jesus get all of life. If you have him, are you really in need for anything else? And even if those needs are very real needs, is Jesus not glorious and amazing and will he not in one way or another by his sovereignty be sufficient for you in the midst of that need? Knowing these things about Paul, Paul goes on to say, verse 12, I know how to be brought low. Of course he does. Of course he does. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Paul was content because all his needs, which were many, were met by Jesus. These verses do not deny the reality of Paul's need, but rather they testify that he is content to live in both plenty and in want. I love what Paul says talking about contentment to young pastor Timothy. He says in 1 Timothy 6, Six and seven, but godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing from it. Christians can be content. Christian, you can be content because Jesus will meet and satisfy all your needs. Jesus will never fall short of your expectation. Jesus will never fall short of your expectation. It doesn't mean things are going to go your way, but when things don't go your way, Christ will prove himself to be sufficient and altogether satisfying for you. Jesus will never fall short of your expectations. Jesus always goes beyond our expectation to prove to us that he is better than we ever thought he would be. Right now, what you think about Jesus is not as good as Jesus really is, so as long as it aligns with the Bible. Isn't that crazy? That the best possible goodness and righteousness you can think of Jesus is, he is that much better and that much of his character, whether it be about his judgments against sin or whether it be about his glories in ruling and reigning, whatever it is, he exceeds our expectations. Only Jesus will give us true rest and contentment. It is only in Jesus will we find true contentment. And in context now, this famous verse now all makes, makes all the more sense. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. <laughs> Paul's only ability to be able to be content and to have strength was because the strength that he had was not his own strength, but that strength came from God. 
In other words, the only way we can do anything for God is if through God, he supplies us the energy. And so many people are like, yeah, I can do all things through Christ. Or I can do all things, yes, through him who strengthens you, through Christ who strengthens me. Now let's just flip this verse on our heads to help us understand it more. If God doesn't give me the strength, what can I do? Nothing. Nothing. We can do nothing apart from Jesus. But when many people and many Christians, well-meaning Christians, take this verse and again deceive themselves with it, they love. It's like, it's like they take this through the, I can do all things, yeah, and they put on t-shirts and they like chant it out and then the fine print, like the end of an infomercial, oh, and this drug might kill you. It's like, <laughs> I can do all things. So Christ will give me strength, cough, 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 forget it, move on, Right? It's as though I doing all things is the focus of this verse. And then through him who gives me strength is like the, okay, that's just a little side note, by the way. You know, me, I. The emphasis of what we often do within our faith and within Christianity is the emphasis is on the I and we de-emphasize Christ. But that is not what Paul is saying here. All of, Christ, all of Paul's energy, all of his strength, all of his tenacity to go after things and to be content and to preach the gospel is nothing from within himself, but it all comes through him. It is him who strengthens Paul and it is you who are strengthened by you are able to do anything that God would call you to do. And if he doesn't give you the strength, guess what? It's not happening. Jesus said this perfectly, John 15, one of my favorite sections of verses. And if you're to ask many Christians, what is John 15 about? It's a, yeah, Christian, you abide in him, abide in him. Yeah, that's partially true. John 15, 5. Jesus says, I am the vine and you are the branches. Pause there. Before he ever gets into, hey, Christian, you, you abide in me, which he will, it's not the I focus, it's the him focus, it's the Jesus focus. You are the vine, I am the branches. I'm, well, let me flip that around. Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. And no, I'm not speaking of me literally being as Jesus there in that moment. Branches without the vine are dead. I don't, I don't know how else to say that. Branches without the vine are dead. There is no abiding in Christ if Christ is not the vine. There is no life for us to be had if we are not attached to him. And if we are not attached to him, there is no, he is the source of life. And the only way we have the source of life if we are attached to him by him. I am the vine, you are the branches, you need me, you left here on your own are, are, are dead. And so whoever abides in me and I in him he it is that bears much fruit. Now, in case we get too thick-headed here, Jesus says, for apart from me, you can do nothing. Now, of course, some people in here, yeah, I, I can make money. I can live a relatively successful life. I can uh, enjoy creation pretty well without Jesus. Yes, but you can't glorify God and you can't do anything for his glory apart from him. Again, not an I emphasis, but a Jesus emphasis. And the only way Paul could do all that he has done is a credit to God and his glory. We are completely dependent upon God. Remember, we're the branch that is connected to the vine. You and I are not 95% dependent upon God. We are completely dependent upon him. So don't look for the eye. And you're like, well, why are you trying to make the case that we always look for ourselves in the scriptures? We do. And a testament to that is, who do you look for in a photo first? Why are you laughing, some of you? You're not looking for your spouse or your friend, seeing what their hair looks like. You're checking out yourself. That's what you're doing when you see a photo first. Because our eyes are trained to look for, for, for me, for, for, for ourselves. When it comes to the scriptures, I want you to see your self-centeredness, even in, pro <laughs> even in approaching the Bible, that you would see him first and what he has done in light of what we are to do for him. 
I want you to see and to learn from the scriptures that we look to Jesus first and we look to all that he has done because we have total inability apart from Jesus. It has been, always will be about Jesus. We never at any point in time go and move past him. So hear me now in closing. Whatever you are facing, whatever frustrations are in front of you, whatever suffering and hardship, whatever you are facing this morning, you can have confidence in Christ. And whatever you are facing this morning, because of Christ, you can have contentment because Jesus is your strength. You will only have contentment if you are connected to the vine. And no matter where you're at, you can do all things because he gives you the strength and the ability to do so. Heavenly Father, thank you that you are the vine. We are the branches. We acknowledge we don't have a, a, any other posture but humility to say that we can do nothing apart from you. God, thank you for every person in here this morning. God, thank you for every ear that heard your word, and we pray that your words would go beyond our ears, transform our minds, and, and, and transform and give us new hearts so that we would live, God, for you, that we would set our minds on things that are above, things that are true, just, honorable, lovely, whatever these things they are, no matter how praiseworthy they are, God, we just want to come before you and give them all to you. So Jesus, thank you. Thank you that you give us your grace. Thank you that we do not have to find the strength within ourselves to live for your glory. that we are so emptied of our own pride that anything we do from you, we have to come to you for the strength to do that for you. And so that is what we do this morning, God. We come before you as a people saying, Lord, we, we declare dependency 100% upon you this morning. Jesus, would you uh, help us as a church? Would you help me to, to be content in all things and you will give me the strength to be content? Would you help me to learn and to realize, would you help us to believe that, Jesus, you are enough and that with much and with little, we can be content. For apart from you, God, we can do nothing. Even if we're in need, Lord, we can do all things through you who gives us strength. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope that Jesus is doing a work in your life from the message that you just heard. We would love to hear how you were impacted and what was impressed on your heart. Share your story by emailing connect at shorebreakchurch.com. And if you don't know Jesus as God, Lord and Savior, or you have more questions, send us an email to info at shorebreakchurch.com so we can get you dialed in with a free Bible and resources for your new relationship with Jesus.